Once again, welcome to Faith Reformed Baptist Church. Before we begin, I would like to ask uh, the Lord's help and his assistance to us, and we preach, and we, we pray that the Lord will be glorified tonight. So let's lift our hearts up to the Lord. <clears throat> Holy Father, we want to thank you for your kindness and your long-suffering. We know that we are sinners and that we deserve nothing, but we have a worthy Christ and we have depended upon him and he has promised and you have sent him to us. And so because of his atoning work, we come boldly. We come boldly because he is able and he is worthy and he is our intercessor. And so we ask, Lord, that you would provide to us the assistance of your Holy Spirit. Open our ears, open our eyes of the heart. Open my mouth that I might speak truth that the word might be made plain. Allow Christ to be lifted up. Allow the gospel to be made plain. We pray this for us in our assembly. We pray this also in every congregation that preaches your word. So, Father, come, fill our hearts. Holy Spirit, minister to us. Receive our worship and our adoration. Receive from us the hymns that we sing, the prayers that we pray. And may our hearts bless you. And we pray this in our Lord's name. Amen. Amen. We had a good time this morning uh, over in Maitland. It was a wonderful uh, experience. It was a good worship service. I trust you had the very same here. Uh, so I'm so glad to see everyone here. You're all so familiar. Let's turn to our scriptures tonight to 1 Peter. This is something that I don't often do. This is going to be a, a topical method, message, but I will be going over the contents of uh, verses 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 in chapter 5 of 1 Peter. And if I had to give a title to this, I would say just humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. So if you would allow me to read to you, I'll be reading from the ESV. <clears throat> humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are kept experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. These are wonderful words spoken by the Apostle Peter and are a tremendous benefit to us. I think that every Christian who is serious about their lives lived before God and wanting to serve him will undergo persecution and they'll have certain amounts of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones used to call it to spiritual depression. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when we experience this in our lives, we often fail to go to God. But it is the place that God intends us to go. When we find ourselves without strength, Christ is where we need to go. Mm -hmm. When we find ourselves in the shadow and in the darkness and, and depressed and and, and, and shouldering, shouldering the things that many times break people. We need to understand that our Lord died for these purposes, that we might have an endurance, 
that we would endure in the faith. And so with this, I have a doctrine for you to take. The doctrine is this. God has a time appointed where he will exalt the Christian in Christ. There is a time that God has appointed that he will exalt the Christian in Christ. Now, this path to being exalted in Christ is the same path that Christ lived. And if we examine the life of our Lord, we'll see that he endured many hardships. He was never rich. He was in this world. He was never a man of nobility of this world. But he was one that overcame sin. Not that he had sin, but he overcame the world. And so we are to follow this example. We are to follow this type of example that we have. So the doctrine is this. There is a time in which God would exalt the Christian. God is going to promote the Christian to a position of honor. Now it may be in this life or it may not be in this life. That's God's choosing. If you recall, we do have people in the, in the, in the scriptures that some of them were noble, some of them were rich, some of them were powerful, had influence. We think of even the father Abraham. He was a man of substance. Think of David. He was a man who, was, who had, uh, he had, he had put him, you know, he'd, he'd gotten himself, uh, shall we say, a man after God's own heart, and yet God gave him that authority. Solomon. Job. But there are also so many others that we don't even know their names. We don't know who they are. And yet they have been exalted in Christ. I believe that God is pleased when a person, by faith, accepts a humbled position in this life before him. Because humility is a work of the grace of the Spirit of God. Humility is what something the Holy Spirit can do for us. Now, this morning, I, I gave an illustration to the people over in Maitland, and uh, I mentioned my wife's name. I, I said at Christmas time, you look at her, look at me. I, I mentioned at Christmas time, she makes all these kind of goodies. You know, she'll make toffee, which is really good. It's just kind of sugar with a butter in it, you know, okay? And then you have peanut brittle, which is like sugar with peanuts in it. And then you have fudge, which is sugar with chocolate in it. And so the illustration went like this. Candy is just flavored sugar. And if we were to make the analogy to say, well, sin is like candy. And if sin is like candy, then pride is the sugar of it. You see, the contents of real sin is many times made of the substance of human pride. And when God saves the sinner, one of the greatest blessings that he can give them is a, is a position of humility, a position of obscurity, a position where no one else knows but God. That is something that the world does not understand. The world thinks that they have to have their name up in lights. The world thinks that they have to have an 8 by 10 glossy, you know, up on the, up on the bulletin board. But God is not he, he knows what is best. So with this, we're going to go verse by verse. And we'll see that this type of teaching that, that Peter has for us points us in that very direction. So the observations we have begin with verse number six. So let's read this. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And so notice that you have a, a, a comma there. It goes on to verse number 7 where he ends that with casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. But I'm going to stop right there with that phrase, just that phrase. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now I want to give a warning right here. Sometimes when a person says, you know, if you humble, you humble yourself, God's going to exalt you. So there are people that they kind of go, I can be exalted and all I have to do is humble myself. Well, that's a good deal. I can humble myself like the best. I can be the best humbler you've ever seen. I am so humble. Why? I can't even express how humble I am. I have a sermon on humility, which I haven't preached yet because I just haven't got a crowd big enough to preach it to. It is a wonderful, humble sermon. You see, sometimes the flesh is tempted like that. Sometimes the flesh is says, well, tell me how long do I have to be humble before I'm exalted? Because I don't want to waste my time. I could just exalt myself right now. You see, the darkness of the human nature, the way we are able to lie to ourselves is staggering. It's staggering. And so God has made part of our salvation. It's built right into it that to be saved from the power of sin is a position of true humility before God. He wants to take the sugar out of your diet. He wants to take the pride out of your life because we should have our pride in God. There is the warning. Do not be tempted to say, there is a way to be exalted. All I have to do is this. The whole idea of, of, of humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God is to teach us that we should let God be the one who exalts anything. And the exalting, in my opinion, may or may not be in this life. It may or may not be in this life. I would say that all of God's people will be in Christ in heaven. We'll sit on thrones judging the nations. We will be in Christ. And Christ is truly exalted. And it is a blessing for us to be in him. But there is no one in this whole creation that humbled himself like our Lord did. Amen. He came and put on our flesh and allowed himself to be murdered by those he loved. How humbled can that be? And we need to walk in those steps. That's the kind of Christians we need to be. Don't worry about being depressed because sometimes, you know, I know that sounds awful. Don't worry about being depressed. Um, but, but depression many times comes from the bruising of an ego or the, or the taking away of plans that never came to fruition. All the dreams, you know, I've always heard, you know, the white picket fence in front of the house. Now, you may not know what that means, but it just means the dream house that you've had, the dream spouse that you had, the dream children that you wanted, the dream career, all these things. And yet, I'll guarantee your life did not turn out the way you thought it would. And many times you'll lay at night and think, what happened? What derailed my life? I wanted something so much better than this. You need to take a look at what happened to our Christ and see the value of your life lived for his glory. 
There is nothing better than to be in the position that God has planned for you. Nothing better. Peter tells us that God has plans to exalt you, to, to exalt us. And this, we need to take note that it will be at the appointed time. At the appointed time. The King James says due time. It's at a time in which God has set. And so, what do you think that time will be? Will that just be a willy-nilly time? Will that just be a shot-in-the-dark time? Is that just a um, random time? Well, all the good times are taken. I gave you this time. Is that how God arranges things? I think not. I think in His wisdom, the exalted time, the appointed time, is the very best time for the glory of God and for the good of your soul. If it is not in this lifetime, it's better for you. If it's in the next lifetime, it's better for you. But even better than that is for the glory of God. It is going to be for the glory of God that he has allowed you to endure these things, giving you the grace sufficient to do them. So it is in due time. It is the time that God chooses. The best place to serve God in this present evil world is from a position of humility not from a position of pride. Do not go into a circumstance, evaluate it and say, how can I take over here? How can I be the one that's in charge? How can I have my way done? But rather, what would be pleasing to my God? What can I do to serve him? Is there anyone hurting? Is there anyone needing prayer? What can I do? Because when the Lord came and took on our flesh, he did it for us. Should we not live for others? So what better place is to be in the position of humility? And what better place is there to be than under the mighty hand of God? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, the world would say, yeah, I was humbled by that person. Or one country humbled another country. And sometimes humbling is an act of coercion. Yes, he put him in his place. But we should look, look and see that there is a mighty hand. But this mighty hand is a compassionate hand. It's a hand that looks like wings that want to cover their chicks. It looks like a hand that protects and holds, and you are held in that hand, and no one can take you out of that hand. It is under that hand that we need to find ourselves and put ourselves and go to that place. Not say, oh, I'm under the hand of God again. No. Seek where his hand is and put yourself there. Now, the world thinks like this. Oh, that guy has that person under their thumb. What a horrible place to be, under the thumb of someone else. What a horrible place to be, under an oppressive government, under an abusive employer, under this type of uh, demeaning position, to be under something, to be under the pressure, to be under that type of oppression. But to be under the hand of God is where we ought to be, and where we need to seek to be. Because it is a mighty hand, is it not? A mighty hand indeed. A hand that we can take refuge in. A hand that will protect us. It will keep everything away that will harm your soul. And anything that comes 
by that hand has his permission to come there. He'll not let anything into your life that he hasn't said, this will work to their good. This will correct them and this will help them. This will feed them. And though the world means it for evil, I know what I'm doing and I bring it in for their good. And so when we endure things and when people are persecuted, we can still bless the name of God. Nothing, no better place than to be under the hand of God. Now the next phrase, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Well, that's where you are able to cast your cares upon God. How close is his mighty hand? You are simply under it. If you need God's care, and you need his kind hand, and you need the caress of love from the Holy Spirit, then you need to be under his hand. You need to be under his hand. To be under the hand of God, you are in a position in which he will care for you. He is close to you. He is close to receive all the anxieties that you place upon him, all of your cares, all of your cares. Thrust him upon your God. He's able. He is willing. He is able and he is willing. But if he's far from you, how can you cast your care upon him? If you do not want to humble yourself before the Lord, then how can you ask him to take your cares? Humble yourself, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties on him. And why should you do this? Because he cares for you. You always want to, uh, you know, think of this, that whenever you want to commit yourself to, to something, you can, you know, to someone, the first thing that pops in my head was, do they care for me about this? Or do they are looking for an opportunity to get theirs? God doesn't need anything from you. And when he acts, it will be to your benefit. But you see, there's one caveat that we need to truly embrace. His glory benefits us. You see, for people, for human beings, prideful human beings, glory is something that a prideful man seeks to have himself exalted. And therefore, we kind of impose that upon God. Well, he just wants to be boss. Well, I got news for you. He really is. And he should be. And it's good for us to know that. So that when he says, it is good for you that he is exalted, we need to understand that with the heart. We need to embrace that much more fully. Our lives are to be spent for his glory. And we come to realize later in life that if you had lived your life for the glory of God, you would have seen his hand care for you. Not that he never did and not that he didn't and not that, he, that these things did not happen to you. It's just that you would be able to see it better. The eyes of faith are opened by the Holy Spirit to show you the mighty works of God. But you must be able to see. You must be able to see. Let's go on to verse number 8. <clears throat> be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, this idea of being sober-minded, 
Now, when, when I preach and when I teach, I sound like I'm pretty serious. But, you know, I think any one of you that are my close friends, you know that I'm kind of the, 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 joke, the joker guy. I can be pretty funny sometimes. Listen to me. Sometimes people don't think that I'm a serious-minded person because I am a jovial guy. I'm just funny. Look at me. But I want you to understand something about being sober-minded because this is important. If you think being sober-minded means that you can never laugh, well, I think you have the wrong idea about being sober-minded. Sober-minded is a way of developing your thinking that keeps your view of God high and serious. Your view of God high and serious. Don't joke about God. Don't joke about his name. Don't joke about the things of God. Now, these other guys over here and myself joke about me. Joke about people. You know, you can tease someone because teasing is a form of love if you don't do it cruelly, if you don't do it in a cruel way. Because sometimes people are very unskilled in love. Sometimes the only way they love people is by teasing them, and then they understand they don't understand why they're always in trouble. Well, you need to become more skilled in expressing your love. Sometimes a sense of humor can be a curse to you if you don't know how to how to express your sense of humor. We need a way of reasoning this world out in a way that we take the things seriously that should be taken seriously. You need to consider the nature of our God, both in his power and in his holiness in a very serious way. This is something that, you know, like for example, people think this is the cutest thing that they say, oh, I heard this person ask, can God create a rock bigger than he can carry? And they kind of chuckle like that. <laughs> you know, and it's like, well, I suppose that's a little bit cute from a you know, five-year-old, but not from an adult. It works like this. If you're going to think about God, don't jest about who he is. He is a God that's far beyond our comprehension. Now, you can joke about me because I can create a rock bigger than I can lift you know, I can put myself in a, no, I really can't, but I can put myself in a position where I back myself in a corner and I don't know how in the world I can get out of it. But you see, someone thought that they could put God into a position where they say, oh, I bet he can't solve that problem. Yes, he can. He can solve any problem he wants. When you consider the fullness of the depth of his promises, do not joke about that. These are serious things. These are wonderful things that we can, in a serious state of mind, Embrace them. We need to have worthy thoughts of our God. Yes. Worthy thoughts. You know, He is the God Almighty. Do not take His name in vain. That doesn't just mean using bad words. It means using His name in a flippant, flippant way. As in a punchline for a joke. Do not do that. We need to reverence His presence reverence his presence. We need to respect his person. But it doesn't mean you don't have to be a sourpuss. You can laugh. You're allowed to be jovial. You're allowed to be happy. Happy and lighthearted. Why? Why? I think Christians ought to be the happiest people in the world. Why? Well, it works like this. If, you know, if people don't do this anymore, they just hire lawyers and they send, you know, a bill collector. But if a bill collector came to your door, and he pounded on the door, 
and he has this paper that says, you have to pay this bill, it's very big, or else I'm going to call the cops. He's going to take you away. You know what to put a smile on your face? A big wad of cash. There's your money. Take off. <laughs> you know, all these things, you can laugh at your problems if you know you have the answers to them. Now, here comes the problem that people have in spiritual depression. They don't embrace the idea that God gives them problems for their good and that he answers our prayers and that we have what we need because when life gets tough, we can still smile. We can still be happy. We can still have the work of the Spirit within us. We can have cheerfulness. You know, that kind of cheerfulness in a time of, of great pain is called joy. We can have the joy of the Holy Spirit by knowing that our God is for us. But we must do that serious work first. We must be sober-minded about our faith and about our God. And in so doing, it gives us the ability to become watchful. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Now, the idea of being watchful here, and I'll say it this way, being sober-minded is the very first and best step of being watchful. Being careful. You see, because the fact that a man has become sober-minded means that he was watching, watching, taking care. So now that we've taken our faith seriously, we need to be fully aware and to be watchful for the things that will trip us up. Because you need to watch this way. Have your heart warm toward God. Have your heart warm toward a relationship with Him through Christ. Keep the person of Christ ever before the faith, the eyes of your faith. And you say, well, this is so simple. This is just like thinking of Christ and what He's done for us. You say that over and over again. I'll never stop saying that. Because that's the foundation of our faith. It is the very foundation of our faith. Now, <clears throat> there is a reason why. Because it tells us here, why be sober-minded and be watchful? Well, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And that's the reason. Satan is hunting for the Christian who is not watching. The Christian who is not sober-minded. Now, know this. Satan is a sober-minded being. He is a watchful being. He's not sober-minded about God only as an enemy. And he is a watchful being in that he is trying to find the one who is not watchful for God. Why? That he may sift them like wheat, that he may devour them, that he may destroy them. He wants the Christian to become shipwrecked in their faith. He wants them to be unusable, like a pot that's designed to hold water. And he wants to put a crack in them to where the water leaks out. And they're unable to fulfill the purpose for which they were created. And that is to glorify God. That's what Satan designs to do. He is serious about it. Serious-minded. He is watching you see? Should we take advice from that? Well, the devil is doing it. There's good reason because he knows it works. Now, Peter is telling us, be sober-minded. It doesn't mean that you have to be glum. He wants us to be joyful. 
but to be sober-minded about the things of the faith and to be watchful. He wants us to always be usable in God's service. Satan wants us to be preoccupied with the things of this world, to be preoccupied with the cares of this world, when we should be casting all our cares upon God, humbling ourselves beyond, under his mighty hand. We should be preoccupied with God. Let the dead bury the dead. We need to have our very first desire to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things, they will be added. You know, the world says it this way, and it's not a bad thing. The world says it like this. Hey, if you watch the pennies, the dollars take off, you know, take care of themselves. And so what should we do? We should seek Christ with all of our heart. All these other things will fall into line if we do that. People ask me like this all the time. How can I be a good parent? Oh, I don't know how to answer that other than this. I say, do you love your children? And they say, oh, yes, I love my children. That's why I want to be a good parent. And I tell them, you got 90% of it under your belt already. The real problems that children have is that have parents that don't care about them, that they, 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 their, their minds are off in other places. They want to do other things. They're dreaming about the life that they could have had if they didn't have kids. Look, if you love your children, then you will do mostly of what is right. Now, it's good to read books. It's good to ask for advice. But if you don't have love for your children, you'll never raise them right. And so I say this. If you love the world, you'll never live like a Christian, right? You have to love Christ. And then these other things will work themselves out. You seek ye first the kingdom of God. These other things will be added. You seek and love Christ with all your heart. And all of a sudden, the little pieces start coming together. Now, we all may have our differences, but if we all love Christ... Those differences are distinctions that make no difference. I love that phrase. You know, Krothammer said it. I wrote it down. You know, people have arguments. They say, well, that, that makes it different. No, no, that's a distinction that makes no difference. Okay? And so when it comes to doing the right thing, how to become a good Christian, love Christ with all your heart, and all the other things are distinctions that make no difference. Because they will follow up. They will fall in, in place. Now, he, Satan, wants to go about finding a Christian who is not watching, who is not serious-minded, and he wants them to doubt God's promises. He wants them to doubt God's promises. He wants them to be too proudful to embrace grace. You see, grace is something that a proud man doesn't want. Grace is something only the humbled will receive. Because the true definition of grace can only be embraced by the humble. He wants you to be confused about the Word of God. It's very foundations. We need to be serious about our doctrine. We are a confessional church. We are a church that likes to understand what the Word says. But once we understand what it says... We need to take its meaning and embrace it. Let's go to verse number 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Resist him. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. And it's our job. It is our responsibility. And the things that we have been equipped to do with our faith, and that is to resist the devil. 
to resist all that he is trying to do against God and against us. You need to be aware that we are not alone. Look at us, look at us here in this small congregation. A few people here, a few people there. One person here. You know, we were just a little tiny group. But I'm telling you this. We have a relationship with all the other Christians in the past. Moses is our brother. Job is our brother. David is our brother. Deborah is our sister. Mary is our sister. They are our family. That's our legacy. That's our heritage. They endured. We can endure. We're with them. We're one of them. They're one of us. It says, let me find the scripture, resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There are people that suffer right now bodily and physically and spiritually and, and mentally. People are really being persecuted in the world. Remember the story I told you about how our, our sister Amanda, she would say they paint numbers on their houses there. If you were a Jew, you get a number one. If you're a Christian, you get a number two. The Jews go first, then the Christians. And they're gone. We, we, we seem to think that if they take away a tax credit, we're just you know up in arms. And yet they take their lives away. If they can do it, God will give us grace to endure also. Know this, that resisting the devil will always be the right thing to do. Use your knowledge of God. Use your knowledge of the gospel. Use your knowledge of Christ. Embrace the faith that you are defending. Be defenders of the faith. These are the things that enable us to resist the devil. Verse number 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Well, here we have it. After you have suffered a little while. And right away, people are saying, I'm almost done because I've suffered a lot. Surely, I'm done with a little while. Well, I'd like to ask you, just what is a little while? What in the world is a little while? Some people, minutes. Some people, hours, days, years. But I'm going to ask you a question. We will be in the presence of God forever. Forever. This life, this life, all of it, from the time you were born until the time we turn to dust, is a little while. It's a little while. After a little while. But it could be tomorrow too. God has the option of exalting you at any time. And he has the option of doing anything he wishes. Whatever is best for his glory and was best for you. If you are continuing in suffering and enduring and having depression. God will provide the means of grace. And he will he will provide what is sufficient. And there'll be a time when you look back at this and you'll bless his name that you were counted worthy to suffer for his name. A little while. A little while is in the hands of God. But be assured, after we have suffered a little while, Christ 
will provide all that he has promised. Even in this lifetime or in the lifetime to come. That is his choice. His choice. And I trust his choice and so should you. You should trust his judgment. So should you. Every one of us. Trust the judgment of our God. For now in this life the Lord can bring following the following restoration, confirmation, strength, and establishment. So let's briefly go over these words, and we'll have, uh, I believe, one particular um, application. He says that he would bring restoration. Now this word implies that when a person is broken, they will be restored. There's nothing that can break a man better than the gospel, because when the world builds a man... He is built with the cement and mortar and brick of pride and sin. And when the gospel comes, when the Holy Spirit comes and breaks up a man's ability to save himself, the, the ability then is seen in Christ. He will be restored in Christ of all that he has lost. If you have lost brothers and sisters because of Christ, you will be restored a hundredfold. If you have lost anything, God will restore a hundredfold. He will rebuild your soul. It says in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said unto them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit in his glorious throne, and you have followed me, uh, will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold, and will inherit eternal life. There's nothing that you can give up that God will not restore. Don't go back to the image and wishes when you had, when you were a teenager that said, Oh, I want the perfect spouse. Oh, I want the perfect children. This and that. God has something much better for you than that. He'll also, besides re restoration, give us confirmation. Confirmation. Now, Christians should not be unstable. They should be stable people in the faith. And when they are, they will be confirmed. Now, this is an interesting word. Christ will establish you in the faith. You need to be fixed and firm on Christ and in his work. In James 5, verse 8, we read this. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, this particular word, to be confirmed, <clears throat> has the idea that we are to be put into a certain position and tightened down. Now, I don't know if you're a mechanic or not, but you know I've seen the times where I've opened up my hood... And the belt on my alternator is all loose. You know, it's not charging my battery. And I'll say, well, I wonder why this belt's loose. And I touch my alternator, and it's moving. And so I'll go get a wrench, put it in place, and I'll tighten it down. That's what God is going to do to his people. He'll say, you are out of place. He puts you in place and tightens you down. And how does he do that? He does it with the correction of his word and by the convicted work of the Holy Spirit. I used to have cars back when I was young where I had to actually tune them up. And there is what used to be called a distributor cap on a distributor shaft. And if you take that shaft and loosen it and turn it, the timing of the engine is slightly different. And you can make it run a little bit lean, a little bit, you know, 
you know, all, all different kinds of wood, but you have to put a, a tachometer on it and then set it right. And then once you have it right, you clamp it down. Every one of us needs to be adjusted. We need to have God's hand upon us, and we need to be turned so that the timing is right, so that our hearts are right, so that what we do is right, and then he clamps it down. We need to have proper attitudes. Now, the word attitude is interesting. It's actually an, it's a navigational word because, you know, we can always say that, well, that's, you know, he has a bad attitude. You know, and, and we, use, we borrow that word from the, from the Navy. But a ship, if the captain says, tell me the attitude, you know what the answer is going to be? A certain degree of direction. Change the attitude of the ship and make it this and this. And then the ship is turned. If we need an adjustment in attitude, what God is saying to us, you need to have your mind in a different direction. And then once it's there, he clamps it down and we stay in that direction. That's to be confirmed in the faith. God will restore God will confirm. And then he says strength. Now this particular word is only mentioned one time. And this is it right here in the scriptures. It is to confirm in spiritual knowledge and power. There is a power in knowing what you believe. There is a strength in understanding the doctrines. Because some people... They'll be shifting about. They'll run pillar to post because they're not too sure what it means. And somebody will say this. Well, to me, it means this. Well, I want to know what it means to the Lord. I want to know what it really means. Not this to you or to me. I want to know what the facts are. It gives strength to know what we believe. And so seek out the scriptures. Study them diligently. Ask God to open your eyes. Know your doctrine. It'll give you strength. Everyone has doubts. That's just normal. That's just what it is. But you should have your doubts in a crucible. You know what that is? People don't know what a crucible is anymore because uh, the pharmacies don't use them. It used to be once upon a time, back when I was a young, a pharmacist would have a little, like a ceramic bowl and a pistol, mortar and pistol, and they would put drugs in there and grind them up and make a new compound. If you have a doubt, you need to put it in there. You need to take that and address your doubts. But what I'm going to say is this. It's normal to have doubts. But you should not just believe your doubts. You need to resolve your doubts. See, people make this mistake. They start believing their doubts when they don't have it resolved yet. And then they start doubting their beliefs. You see? Believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts. Know the difference. Work on one and depend on the other. Okay? Be reasonable, people, with this. Because this will give you strength. Restoration, confirmation, strength. And the last one, establishment. Establishment. This word has the, has the idea of being established and being firm. In Matthew 7, we read this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who has built his house on a rock. He's going to establish his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them be foolish, uh, does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. 
Now, <clears throat> way back in 1990, I built a house. I bought a piece of land over on Knox McRae, and it was a farmland. It was used to raise strawberries and this and that, and it's a low place. And so all the water around the area would be washed from the higher places down to the lower places, and that's where this property was. And you know what happens? All the muck from those places washed down to my place. And so when I walk out there and you dig a little bit, you find muck. Now, muck is not good soil. Muck is some type of waterproof yuck. I mean, it doesn't let the water through. It doesn't let the water percolate. It's really a bad thing to have on a piece of land. And so I believe that the inspector that came out to my property knew about my land. He told me before he comes out, he said, I'm going to inspect your land to see if it's fit to put a house on. You know what that means? You have to have land that can hold the house. He said, dig a hole three feet deep, and I'll come out and take a look. And so I dug a hole three foot deep, you know, and I dug one foot and hit water. So I kept digging two more feet. And this guy, an engineer, scientific, comes out with a stick. This man, now, you know, at that time I was a little bit younger, and he was a little bit older than me. And he comes out with his scientific tool, a stick. He goes up to that hole, and he just jams it down into the hole. And he says, ah, there it is. I hit coquina, I can tell it. All you got to do is remove the muck, dig up that coquina, put it right over there on a pad, and you're good to go. Some people think I bought a place with a pond. No, I didn't. I had to dig my house pad out of the ground. Dig it out and put it on top of a place where I removed all the muck. And then it was stable. What God does many times in our lives is that he says, man, you have a lot of muck we got to remove. But there is a place that we can build on, and that is Jesus Christ. Remove your misconceptions of who our God is and go to the scriptures and build your house on Christ. Because the muck isn't going to, the muck would just squeeze like a sponge. The foundations will break. It needs to be removed and it needs to be built on solid coquina, solid, solid ground. And then they pack it down, they pack it down. And then your house isn't going to break. And that's what we have. Now, very quickly, we have one application. Humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God will bring glory to God and benefit to your soul. Now, I know I've already mentioned that, but I'm bringing it in as an application to remind you. To remind you. When you humble yourself before God, it's like saying this. Let me build my life on something solid. Not myself. Something unmovable, like God. Like His gospel. That's what we're saying when we do that. We need to recognize how unstable the human heart is and how prone we are to say, this above all things to thine own self be true. Remember that? That's Shakespeare. It's not the scriptures, okay? That's not true. Do not accept the words that someone says, oh, this above all things to thine own self be true. No, that's in Hamlet. Don't confuse it just because it's thee and thou. This above all things to Christ be true, to God be true, to the scriptures Dedicate your heart and your life. It's a humbling experience to be under the hand of God. Not that he humbles us in a way where we go, oh, no. No. It's a wonderful, humbling experience to understand that God loves us 
takes care of us. There's no better place to be in than to be under the mighty hand of God. God has a time appointed when he will exalt the Christian. There may be some exalting done in this life. There probably won't be. That is from the world's point of view. Now, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear, sometimes living in obscurity, serving God in a humble way, you should have the eyes to see that he's exalted you. That's a place of honor. A place that he's entrusted you with. That he's put it into your care. The path to being exalted in Christ is the same path that our Christ lived. Endurance, suffering for the glory of God. Depend upon his gospel, depend upon your Christ, and live under his mighty hand. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful for your kindness and your grace and your long-suffering with us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for our sins. Holy Spirit, visit us now. Comfort our hearts, comfort your people. Allow us, Lord, to live under your mighty hand. Enable us, Lord, to fight our pride, to truly humble ourselves before you, to live for your glory. So, Father, save the sinner. Allow them to see your beauty. Allow them to see the ugliness of who they are. Allow the saint to worship you. May our hearts truly embrace you. We pray these things in our Lord's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.